The characters in Kelly Sather's story collection, Small in Real Life, live in Los Angeles and other places in California. But even they give in to illusions about this often mythologized place and continue to dream and scheme and aspire to a life that's just out of reach, but still with the trappings of living large. And while it may be that their many whims and schemes are aspirational, they soon find that reality, real life, can be just as desirable as something smaller. When they face their own real lives, California isn't so glittery. It's a smaller, darker, maybe more mysterious space that they might come to understand they still yearn for and fight for. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to Kelly Sather about her story collection, Small in Real Life. So, Kelly, this book's been out now for several weeks, and this is your first book. So I really want to know, tell us, what's it been like for you to have this story collection out there? How are people responding? It has been so fantastic. I have heard, you know, it's, I hadn't expected what it was like to go out and to go to bookstores and different places and talk about the book. And I've been really struck by how I just feel really connected to the people who are reading it. And I feel like they're reflecting back what I felt when I was writing it. So it's been this really wonderful place to connect that I hadn't expected. I think I had been um, really focused on how would I talk about the book and what questions would people ask? I mean, that of course has happened, but it's really been this place to just kind of talk about reading and what it was like writing it and these characters, Los Angeles, Southern California, and I've just really loved it. Oh, that's so that's so nice, because I can imagine it's sort of intimidating, like you have your work out there, people are reading it, you have to sort of sit there in front of them and talk about it. What's been the most surprising part of the process for you, for better or for worse, I guess, regarding this collection of stories, and what's been surprising for you with the readers? Like, I feel sometimes like readers notice things about our writing that we might not necessarily notice or that we think they won't notice. So has anything like that happened to you? It's happened in two ways. It's happened when I've talked about how I wrote the book. I didn't realize when I was writing the stories that I was knitting them together because when I was rewriting each story, I would tend to move between stories. And so even before I envisioned these stories as a book, I think that they were it was almost like they were collecting themselves in a way, which I didn't realize until I started. And still people asked me, readers asked me, well, how did you write it? And how did these all come together? And then I think the other aspect of surprise, I don't think it's so much been a surprise, but I really enjoyed talking about the humor in the book hmm. and just where that's come from. And because I think I was really thinking about it when I was writing and then to hear other people enjoy it. I, I did a couple readings in Los Angeles and just to hear people laugh at the parts that I thought were funny. It was very, <laughs> it was like a really good, um, uh, you know, when you spend that much time on your own in a room thinking, well, I think this is funny, but it's not like I'm laughing out loud. And then to hear people laugh out loud, it's, it, that was, that was really fun. I love this because it's so true. I mean, the stories stories are are dark. They're about loss. They're about this, you know, this human condition of 
of loss, of always grappling with loss and trying to survive it. And life is absurd, you know. So I do, I do find the, some humor in, in this book, in your stories. And um, I like the idea, I think, that, um, that it was there to be found. I think I, I really like that idea. And you did publish several stories in journals. You know, I think sometimes people want story collections to just have these pieces that click together and fit. And, they, you know, they, they sort of have to make sense as this composite whole. And I feel like story collections just do that sort of organically or magically. I'm not sure how. But I feel like it's, it's an interesting thing that you said about the ways that the stories just happen to fit. You know, they do all take place in, in Southern California, and, but that's not the only thing that's sort of, uh, you know, sort of holding them together. So what kind of alchemy was going on there for you? Well, I think that they're, I think tonally they're consistent. I think also I was drawing on experiences, my observations, some that I didn't even know that I was having, they just sort of come out as you're writing. And so they were really informed by this period of time of both growing up in Los Angeles and then returning there and working. I was living in California. I was living in Northern California at the time that I wrote them. And so I think that there was this sort of consistency of a feeling of California and then being outside of Southern California gave me, I liked having that separation because it was almost as if I could be more imaginative and follow threads from memory or just, you know, whatever was kind of coming up subconsciously that I felt while I was there. And and the other thing is a lot of the characters in the stories are yearning for some sort of recognition that felt like a very sort of Southern California aspect. And so in ways in looking back at my own experiences um, to kind of find some of those, let's, how would I say it? It's not necessarily perspectives because these aren't my experiences, but to, to just kind of inform the landscape that these characters are in, in some ways I was yearning for that past as well. Oh, I find that so interesting. You know, I, I feel like I'm in Texas and I feel like Texas and California are states that we mythologize or that others mythologize. I feel like Someone who's visited California several times, and I, I've loved every place I've visited, but I I do have this sense of, I always say, oh, I'm going to retire and move to California. I, I have this sense of being in love with an idea of of California, of Southern California. And I, I tend to do this about Texas, of, of sort of like, it's, I don't know, and I, I feel like people who are not from Texas have like a very different idea of the state than than I do. But what is it? I think I think songwriters have have really mythologized California, but I think story writers too. Do you think so? Do you think that there's something about Southern California that makes it so easy to mythologize it? Well, it's interesting because it's it, sometimes the simple ingredients of the weather and the consistency of the weather 
creates kind of a, um, and by weather it's, you know, the sun and the beach and yeah. the palm trees and all those things. I remember when I learned that palm trees were, um, actually there were more palm trees in Northern California and they were brought down to Southern California. I thought that was so fascinating because wow. I really did, um, growing up in LA, uh, I really did feel that, <laughs> that that was part of the, part of the image, you know, where it all started. So, I mean, and that's also kind of fascinating that it was created. It was seen as, as a good, something, something that they wanted to capture about yeah. Southern California. So, so I don't know what it is. Like, I, I think I have this feeling, in fact, it was really interesting when I was just going down for um, the book launch at the beginning of last month and I got off the plane and I just even the air, even though I was only, you know, I had only been on the plane for an hour, but even just coming from Northern California, the air feels different. It's sort of a little drier. It's a little more desert. And there's a part of my body that just relaxes because it's, you know, felt like that's the first air I knew kind of thing, the first climate. Mm -hmm. And there is, I mean, I think that, I think that the entertainment business has an aspect to it. And then I think that it's sort of that yearning of the West that maybe Texas gets some of that too, sense of, our own version of what a wide open space would be like, like that notion of retiring to California. It's like a new, a new horizon, a new Vista that's going to unfold. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't really see that if, if I said like, Oh, I'm going to move. I mean, Vermont might have that, but like Connecticut, not so much, you know, if you sort of try <laughs> on different States, they all, yeah. they all might have their own, their own character. So to the collection and I always read, First story first. I never skip around, and mm. um, and I and I go through the entire collection. And I've heard Peter Orner discuss ideas about the order of stories and collections, and we know the first story is very important. And then you know he has said certain things about the second story in a collection and what that means. But you start this collection with the Spaniard, and I want to know what that what that's about. It was that a choice that you were able to make uh, as the, as the writer of the stories and and what does it mean for you to have the Spaniard be the first story in the collection? So I um I love Peter Orner's work and I've heard him talk um several times about his books and his collection. So um it's just great to hear his name and um and talk about stories in that same context. So I um a funny thing happened when I was putting this collection together. I really thought about the order and I wrote the titles on three by five cards. And I, you know, said, okay, there's a, you know, this is a, this is a male character, main character, and this is a teenager. And, you know, I sort of lined them all up and tried to alternate them and tried different things. And then when I, um, when I submitted the manuscript for um, their consideration, I had this idea that I was going to be able to reorder the stories that I was just kind of like oh. putting them together and then it didn't really matter and I could redo it. And so I sort of, when I put them together, I suddenly didn't think about it at all. And the Spaniard is one, I think because the opening scene feels really strong to me. It has, um, the sort of a little bit of mystery, a little bit of unknown, and then humor in it. Um, it, That I really felt like I wanted 
um, readers to feel that like we're going to explore all these things in this book. So, um, so that's why I picked it. And then of course, when um, the story, when, when the collection, the book won the prize, they're like, great. And this is the order. And so suddenly (laughs) um, this was the order. And you know what? I love the order. Like I can't imagine that it would have had any other order that to me is part of writing a book. Like you kind of don't know what you're doing and you kind of do and somehow it all comes together in the end. Uh, so I, and we should say you, uh, the, you're the recipient of the Drew Hines Literature Prize. Congratulations. That's so awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I mean, right Thank out you. of the gate. That's so that's so awesome. And the Spaniard, I, I get it. It's like it's a story. It's it's in third person. It's it's third close. We really get to know. Well, she's pretty enigmatic as she should be. <laughs> we get to know Jenny. She's about to turn 16 when the story opens. So I'm thinking about like while writing a teenager and she and her brother both seem kind of detached from their parents, a little aloof in the way that teenagers are and a little unsettling, but the way teenagers are. (laughs) And then something happens, no spoilers, to drive them even further away, I think, from their parents, especially their mother. Now, so they're teenagers and they're introspective, Jenny's introspective up to a point she really wants to get what she wants, and she's using a situation against her mother in the process, but it's that part of it is so superficial, and the reader gets to sort of go through and suss out something far more meaningful. And I, I thought, how did, how did Kelly do that? <laughs> I feel like your focus on on these motives of hers were so concentrated in a certain way, but that's not what the story is about. You know, there's this whole other thing that's happening with her that's so profound and it's so poignant. And I just, I just thought, how is that? So you do write the the teenager point of view and also in a small in real life and other stories, you have male characters, but but to keep it on Spaniard, tell, just tell me about that. Did I, did I, did I read that correctly? Do you think this idea about just it's superficially anybody can look at that story and say, "Oh, kids today," you know? But no, that's not really what's going on. There's something deeper. This is about yearning, but it's not about yearning for a car. This is a story. All of your stories, I think, are about characters who are yearning for something. But in this case, in The Spaniard, it's not about a car. And um, so I just I just marvel at the way that uh, The Spaniard does that for us. Thank you. Yes. And it's interesting because when I really think about short stories, I'm thinking about how much can can I do in this space and how much dimension um, can I build? And I had my own fascination with cars. I mean, I think that's an that's a that's a teenage thing, especially if you grew up in a place like Los Angeles where you really it's hard to get places. I mean, there's buses, but it's the, yeah. it's not like New York or other cities where um buses are sort of everybody. I mean, everybody can take a bus in Los Angeles, but especially when you're a teenager, there's just this focus on freedom in a, in a car. Like if I have a car, my life will change. Yes. Um and so that template is laid on this this other shadowy thing that's going on in this family and and I think that often happens where we're focusing on a surface 
And I love that about Southern California because there is this idea that Southern California is, is sort of a surface place. Um, although I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that's a stereotype, but, but I am playing with it in the book. Mm-hmm. And then I can sneak all these other things in there. And I didn't even know that I was necessarily sneaking them in. Mm-hmm. I think the way that the way that a story evolves or develops for me is almost on the sentence level, like what each sentence can do and and is it operating in more than one way? Oh, I so see that. Something like that happens for me too in Small and Real Life, the title story. This is another third mm-hmm. person close with the character of Lewis. And there's a, there's just a wild space here that maybe most of us readers would never be able to enter this particular sort of party. And yet the title, Small in Real Life, and what it relates to can sort of push us back into having a kind of a different perspective about, you know, Hollywood or, you know, this sort of party set and everybody, it's not just that people are small in real life, but it's just like all of these people, you know, we might think think about it in that sort of mythologizing of, of Southern California and just decide that everybody's got it made and everybody has such a great life. And then we sort of, you know, look behind the curtain and it's really not the case as we see in, in small in real life. Can you talk about that story a little bit for us? Yes, I I think this story came from it came from going to a few parties like this, oh. um, and I I always felt like this was not my life. And I wondered then, do most people feel like that? They come to these parties, you know what I mean? Like, are all are, is the rest of this set built in here, and I'm just the <laughs> odd man out, or do other people feel that way? Um, I mean, that's very common sometimes uh, to feel at any party, but there was a particular aspect because um, some people would be working in the industry. And so you would sort of see actors and you would sort of, and people would float by because that's kind of what it would feel like to me. So I thought about a character who comes to this place and is an outsider and is it's funny. The thing that I find so interesting about him is I almost said he's clamoring to get inside, you know, to get to to, to belong like he perceives other people belonging. Yeah. But I actually think he's just rebelling about where he's found himself. Yeah. Um, and so this experience that he has at the party becomes like another another setting where maybe he starts to have some understandings of of his situation that he's otherwise been denying. So it's funny, like as we're talking about it, it's it's one night at a party, which is another thing that I really like is this idea that anything can happen at any time. And so that's something in a story that I love to unfold and, and see, uh, okay, how far is this going to go? <laughs> that's really true. I, I can so see that. So that leads me to my next question. I mean, the stories are all quite varied, of course, but Lori Siegel recently said to me that she writes stories because she's trying to document what something is like, what a situation is like. And an example that she gave me was she she tripped and she was about to fall. And in her head, in that split second, she was thinking about how she was going to write down what it feels like to be falling down and sort of catch yourself knowing that you're about to fall. And she said, I want my readers to understand what an experience is like. I want them to know what a situation is like, what it feels like, what it's like. You know, and she was saying to me, no, no, I, I don't start necessarily with an image. 
I, I'm always sort of focused on what I'm experiencing and how I want to convey that to, to somebody else. So where does it begin for you? Because these stories are all really varied. Where does this, the story idea come for you each time? I love that. I love that. Um, I was actually thinking about that early today about wanting to describe an experience. Um, I think sometimes I, that for me is more of a motivator when I'm writing an essay, which is really interesting because I, because then it's more personally located, right? Versus yeah. versus in a character. So for me, I think it really starts with something that I become curious about. And generally that is a um, dynamic and maybe this is my screenwriting roots, but often it's a dynamic between people that I'm kind of curious about. And often I find that even if we're not trying to, there's some element of power and a need to feel safe (laughs) that we often, instead of just saying, you know, expressing uh, a vulnerability will (laughs) go for some sort of other, um, tan, you know, other power move really to try and feel better. And like where just sort of how that back and forth can go in a conversation between people or a situation. So I think that's where they, where they often start. And, and in terms of where I'm going and like why I'm doing it is I find that, there's this blend of what I think I know and what I'm aware of and what I'm observing. And then like this other level of what maybe my body has sensed that isn't recorded in my, you know, in my thoughts and how that can actually come up. And I can suddenly start describing something that I didn't, don't even know where it's coming from. And it really begins though with what I'm conscious of. And so it's that blend of the conscious and the unconscious. So I think for me, that's, that's kind of what it's about. That's so interesting. And I feel like that goes back to the question about small in real life. And I'm thinking about how, you know, Frank O'Connor wrote in The Lonely Voice that all stories are about loss and the story democratized literature. And that the reason he can say that is that members of what he calls submerged populations, that's his term for it, are the characters of these worlds on the page. And submerged populations are really the outsiders, you know, like Lewis in Small in Real Life. You know, as you said, like, he's not trying to to gain access into a place. He's trying to get out because maybe that's Mm -hmm. where he feels more comfortable. So the idea for O'Connor is that people from the outside outside of the mainstream, people on the periphery, not in the main, not in the center, finally get to tell their story, even if the story is aspirational in some way, even if they want for more, they want to be successful, they want to be loved, etc., that the idea is that, okay, this is their story. Um, so so the idea of it just sort of coming from forth from from what you were talking about the sort of the when the uh, the subconscious sort of takes hold I just feel like this is a very human thing this wanting you know sort of not ever feeling like we're in the center we're always sort of at an at an edge sort of standing there but we're always aspirational the idea that all, all stories are about loss or that all characters are yearning is around this fact that this is the human condition like this is this is our life. Uh, we, we are always searching for the next thing. Um, so I, I don't know. I just really, you know, sort of immersing myself in your stories. I was thinking about Lori Siegel. I was thinking about Frank O'Connor. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, reading the blurbs on the cover of the book, I can 
kind of guess um, the the authors that have influenced you, or maybe the the authors who influenced the authors that have influenced you. You know, I can sort of see the the um, the the trail of of authors maybe, but I would only be guessing. So I would like to know who are some of the authors. Uh, or what are some of the works that have become touchstones for you? You know, it's so interesting what you were saying about, um, I just was thinking when you were talking about Frank O'Connor, I was thinking about Eudora Welty oh, yeah. and One Writer's Beginning. And she talks about, um, she had a very close family, it sounds like. And she talks about that she thinks her writing began in when she was a kid and she was um, you know, going to bed and she could hear her parents talking together at the end of the day. Um, and I always thought that was so lovely because to me, then it sounded like there was more this connection that she was observing and reflecting on than being an outsider. And I was just thinking about that because I've often thought that that my observations come more from this sort of outsider perspective, which I think also happens if you are observing, right? Because if you, if you, if you take the, take the sort of place or or have that space between what's happening and um, the ability to observe it, then you, then you're kind of separating yourself. Um, So it's so fascinating as you were talking, I was thinking about that. Um, And in terms of my influences, you know, when I started, when I was working on stories and sort of figuring out how they all worked, it was, Deborah Eisenberg and mm-hmm. um, Tobias Wolf and Amy Hempel and actually um, Brett Anthony Johnston, mm-hmm. um, who's there in Texas. Mm-hmm. And then when I was really writing these, I think that there was some Jennifer Egan um, and Mary Robeson. I thought a lot uh-huh. about. So, so I think those are influences. And, and then there's these writers that I read where I really want to start writing. And, and Peter Orner is one of those writers, Garth Greenwell, I, I, you know, yeah. the, those are some people that, that were so generous to, to blurb the book. Nice. My goodness. Yeah. Well, and you were a lawyer and you were a screenwriter. Plenty of fiction writers were lawyers at one time. Do you think that your work in those two worlds, obviously it's screenwriting, but, um, how does it inform your your story writing, especially the the short story? Well, I think um, I think the screenwriting in terms of dialogue was just really helpful. Mm-hmm. Just to have that as a as a practice, when you're writing scenes, you're you're really focusing, or I was really focusing on dialogue. Mm-hmm. So um, so that practice. So when I'm working on a story and I get to dialogue, I just get excited. I think like, oh, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I so that. That definitely has been an influence. And then, you know, the work as a lawyer, I think I think that there's these two experiences I had. One was going to law school, which is the amount of reading is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Like you read these case stories and the uh, case, listen to me, case, case, <laughs> cases, not stories. I'm going to call them stories because that's what they felt like to me. And the paper is so thin and there's two columns on every page. And I just remember thinking, this is just miserable. And so- but what it did teach me is it did teach me to like be okay with like a lot of material and um and kind of figure things out like there is it's not so much analytical as much as it is figuring out what the significant um aspects are and then there's a lot of organization like you just have to be comfortable with a lot of material and being able to move it around and so in terms of rewriting i often think about 
some of what I did in law school is, is just being comfortable with, you know, with going back into a text and like figuring out what else it could be doing and what's working, what isn't. And then practicing as a lawyer, uh, I think that was as, because I didn't last very long. So I was a pretty young lawyer and a lot of times I didn't know what I was doing and I just kept showing up, you know, that sort of as a practice, as a writer, I think you learn, you learn while you're doing it. And so, um, you just to have that like staying power to stay with it, I think is, um, is, is part of the, part of it. Your stories, I'm thinking about like Venice and Oracle and all of the stories in the collection. They're, they're dark, they're emotional, they're full of conflict, they're full of these tangles. And lately I've been thinking a lot about something that I came across by Edward Hirsch. And it's this, and he was saying it about poetry, but I, I feel like it's something that applies to stories too. And, and it's this, he said, implicit in poetry is the notion that we are deepened by heartbreaks, that we are not so much diminished as enlarged by grief, by our refusal to vanish, to let others vanish without leaving a verbal record. And I thought, I was thinking about your stories, and I thought, this is it. (laughs) It moves us away Mm. from the idea that stories are just sad. Like, oh, they're just sad. Oh, they're just heavy. They're just dark. And that's it. There's more to it. There's more to say that we are deepened by the losses or what's so heavy. We are uh, not diminished by it. We're enlarged by those sorrows. So that's Edward Hirsch. And I feel like, wow, that that just really applies to this this group of stories by you. Oh, I love that. And I, um, I hadn't heard that. I've been, as when I started out writing, I, I wasn't as connected to poetry, but the more I, the more I sort of was on this path, I found that poetry was really, um, a way to, with the way the language connects to, I think, you know, when you're reading something and you feel it in your heart and you, and it's familiar, like you, you, it was already there, but somehow by reading it, you connect with it. And I think in stories, especially in, in this collection, I was really putting the shadow next to the light. And so there's moments of grace in every story. And I think without sort of the darker aspects often, which are which we see more of those edges through the humor because there's this like dark humor going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you see everything more clearly and it's felt, you know, it's that deepening that, that Edward Hirsch talks about is really part of it. Kelly Sather, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This is really wonderful to talk with you. Kelly Sather is the author of the story collection, Small in Real Life. It's published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Kelly Sather is the winner of the 2023 Drew Hines Literature Prize. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 